Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me once again this morning to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. The passage is printed in the bulletins. If you have a physical bulletin, it'll be up here. You can grab a Bible on the back table if you'd like. Last week, if you weren't here, we began a walk through this passage that I'm about to read, Matthew 6, and specifically the prayer that lies at the heart of this passage, a prayer that we've come to term the Lord's Prayer. And here in Matthew, in the book of Matthew, Jesus' teaching on prayer is in the context of speaking to primarily a Jewish audience about a host of things. Matthew chapter 6, you'll notice it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And essentially what Jesus is teaching is what life in Christ is supposed to look like. But this isn't the only place that we find Jesus talking about this prayer. I assume, we assume that Jesus reiterated this prayer many times in his ministry, times when it has not been recorded, but it is recorded in another place in the book of Luke. And there, Jesus is answering a direct question posed by his disciples on the heels of him sending them out on mission helping them develop essentially a kingdom-centered view of the world. And so we take those two contexts together, and, and that's essentially what the Lord's Prayer is intended to do to us and to our hearts, to give us a template, to give us an understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what life in Christ looks like, and not just that, but to have a kingdom-centered view of our entire existence and our entire world. And so last week, my aim was simply to remind us of our need for prayer and to remind us of the posture of our hearts needing to be a posture of learning, that we've got to grow in this. My hope was to help us acknowledge both our own prayerlessness as well as our inability at times to pray well, to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. I was reading this week and I came across two helpful questions that I think we can be asking ourselves, not just today, but as we go through this entire study for the next several weeks. The first question is, how is Jesus challenging your prayer life? And the second is, how do Jesus' words correct any bad prayer habits that I have developed? We began last week thinking briefly about what is commonly referred to as the preface of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. What a joy, what a privilege to say those words. We're not praying to some anonymous force We're praying to an intimate Father who loves us, who cares for us, an exalted Father who reigns in heaven. And our access to Him is grounded firmly. Our identity is grounded firmly in the gospel of Jesus, which makes it a family prayer, which makes it our prayer, our being the church. Right? And that's one of the things that this prayer does is it challenges our individualism. There's no first person in this prayer. Prayer does not center on us, a reality that we're going to press into a little bit today, but also prayer together, what we do here, what we do 
in other contexts, whether it be community groups or gatherings as men and women, that prayer together is essential to our life together as God's people. So this morning, with that introduction, we're going to move to the petitions of the prayer, and we're going to find ourselves once again in foundational territory. And so let me read our text this morning. It is our custom at Ascension to stand for the reading of God's Word. I invite you to do that if you would. You don't have to, but would love for you to. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. Listen as I read Jesus' words to his followers. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room. And shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated, please. Hallowed be your name. It's the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, and it's the one we're going to press into and set our minds and hearts on for a few minutes this morning. Coming back from our recent trip to Georgia to visit my wife's parents, I was talking to my daughter about what flying was like when I was her age. I remember going to the Philadelphia airport, grew up in New Jersey as a boy, sitting at the gate waiting for my grandmother to land. I remember watching her plane taxi in and come to the gate and then hugging her literally seconds after she got off the plane and out of the jetway. Our kids can't even imagine such a travel experience. Never again will that happen. Why? Because there are individuals in our world who have proven that they are so zealous for their faith, so zealous for the name of their God, that they will die for it. And in other instances, when the name of their God is slandered, they feel obligated to defend it often with violence. But don't misunderstand me. Their God is not the true God. It's not the triune God of the Scriptures, and their actions are wicked and inexcusable. We can't help but notice their zeal. Their high regard for the name. Though misguided, Though incredibly evil. To quote Paul in, in Romans chapter 1, they have a zeal, but it is a zeal without knowledge. 
I think about their religious fervor and that cultural current, and I compare it with how flippant I think we can be at times. Even with, in regards to our own God, to the true God, to the triune God who we gather to worship this morning. We breathe a cultural air that increasingly thinks little of the value of words and honor, and instead we say words like whatever. The Lord Jesus reminds us this morning in His giving of this prayer, in His instruction through this phrase, that there is not only a time to slow down and to think deeply and hard about God, but there is a need to revere the God who is. To not take our words so lightly There's just one truth, as I said, that I want us to consider this morning, and it's this. Prayer begins with God and His glory. Prayer begins with God and His glory. Following the preface that we looked at last week, there are six petitions, three of them that focus on the Lord and three that focus on us. The Lord knew that we needed this guide, how easily our self-centeredness takes over, how easily our self-centered desires dominate our cries to the Lord. And the first request really governs all the other requests. And not only that, but as the old Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote, he called this petition the eternal petition. It's the one, speaking of eternity in our discipleship hour this morning, this is the one petition, it's the one request that we will, in a sense, never stop praying. Let me quote him. He says, when some of the other petitions shall be useless and out of date, as we shall not need to pray in heaven, give us our daily bread, because there will be no hunger, nor forgive us our trespasses, because there shall be no sin, nor lead us into temptation, because the old serpent is not there to tempt. Yet the hallowing of God's name will be of great use and request in heaven. We shall ever be singing hallelujahs. To understand why God and His glory must be first in our prayers and in our lives, I want to look at two key words. The two key words in this request. The word name and the word hallow. Let's start with name. I just want to say two things about the name. First of all, the name is more than just a label. It's more than just a label. Juliet in Shakespeare's classic work says, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. Her point, as Juliet speaks to her love, Romeo, is that his name, their names are artificial. Their names are meaningless. So why can't they be together? It only matters what lies behind. And in a sense, of course, she's right. And in another sense, she's wrong. 
It's interesting to notice how flippant we are with our names. I was just thinking about my love for sports, for athletics, and two guys came to mind. Chad Johnson, former wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals. His, his name is no longer Chad Johnson. He's renamed himself legally Chad Ochocinco because, of course, his number is 85. And then Ron Artest, former Los Angeles Lakers, who's no longer Ron Artest, He's now Meta World Peace, legally. Meta being the Buddhist word for kindness, and world peace, well, being world peace. All this to say, the flippancy that we might have with our names in our day and age, in our culture, is not the Jewish way of thinking. What's in a name? In the Jewish mindset, it's all in the name. You see, Jews understood that names were more than just labels. They were identities. People just didn't have names. They were names. Think about and remember some of the names of the stories of the Old Testament. Esau, red and hairy. That's what his name means. Jacob, the one who deceives. Naomi renamed herself Mara. Why? To reflect the bitterness of her life. You see, names are more than just labels for people. And so it is with our God. When God first revealed himself to Moses in Exodus, he said, I am who I am. In other words, I need no qualification. I have no qualification. I am the self-existent one. And so he reveals himself as Yahweh, his covenant name, the, the name that the Jews refuse to even pronounce. And then also as Adonai, Lord God. But then in His grace, He reveals Himself by many other names. El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Elyon, the Most High God. El Olam, the Everlasting God. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord who will provide. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. And of course, I could go on and on and on. The point is that when we speak of God's name, we are not just speaking of a label for a being. We are speaking of the whole of what He has revealed revealed himself to be to his people. So when David calls God's people in Psalm 34, magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. He is speaking of the whole of God's revelation, the whole of his character, the whole of his works, the whole of his reputation, the whole of his dealings with men. And you know, our catechisms are helpful in this. The Westminster Larger Catechism, part of our heritage as Presbyterians, speaks about what's wrapped up in the name. Question and answer 90 says this, what do we pray for in the first petition? And the answer is this, hold on. In the first petition, acknowledging the utter inability and indisposition that is in ourselves and all men to honor God aright, we pray that God would by His grace enable and incline us and others to know, to acknowledge, and to highly esteem Him, His titles, attributes, ordinances, word, works, and whatsoever He is pleased to make Himself known by, and to glorify Him in thought, word, and deed, and that He would prevent and remove atheism 
ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him, and by his overruling providence, direct and dispose of all things to his own glory. That's a mouthful, but that's rich. As intimate as the fatherhood of God is that we talked about last week, so the name of God and all it represents transcends and indeed demands that we hallow it. But before we get to hallowing and what that's all about, I just want to say one more thing about what the name of God implies. Not just that it's more than a label, but the name of God also implies access. I mean, this is related to the fatherhood of God and to the boldness and the confidence that we have coming to our creator through Jesus. It's just recognizing that God's revelation of himself is in and of itself a gracious act. You understand what I mean by that? I mean, when someone calls you on the phone, you pick up and you say, hello, and they say, who is this? Are you prone to immediately identify yourself and say who you are? Oh, hi, this is Nathan Hitchcock. I'm in Edmonds, Washington. Oh, I'm curious, who are you? You don't do that. You don't say anything. You say, who's this? Like, you identify yourself first. Because when we identify ourselves, when we give our names, we give people access. See, God's revelation of his name is an absolute gift to us. We can call upon him because we know him, because he has told us who he is. We have a name to hallow. We have a piece of him in that way, if I can say it like that, without being irreverent. We're not orphans, we're children. The name of God is indeed worthy to be hallowed. So what does it mean to hallow? Well, that's a word that we don't use very often. It's an English word, an old English word used to translate a Greek verb. It means to adore, to honor, to revere, as one pastor stated, to treat as sacred and ultimate. The hallowing of God's name certainly begins with the mere utterance of who he is. The third commandment warned us not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But as the catechism reminds us, it's more, it's bigger than that. It extends to how we view God, his works, his promises, his demands. It's what God's people were declaring in Psalm 20 when they said, some people trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So what is Jesus calling us to do in this request? What is he asking us to do? Before any request, before any mention of your need for bread, we need to acknowledge to ourselves and our own hearts and to the God that we pray to that he is who we really need. That he is what we need. And that he is what life is all about. You see, this request brings everything else into focus. It puts everything else into its proper context. If God's 
glory and his name is paramount, then our problems, though not insignificant, are secondary. God the Father, yes, he says, cast your cares upon me because I care for you. He still values, he still longs for you to cast your cares upon him. But the prayer of the redeemed heart ought to be first for his glory. Hallowed be your name. So the question comes to us this morning, can we pray in this way? Can we learn to pray in this way? We all hallow something. Comfort, respectability, worldly success, self-image, whatever. One author writes, all our problems are problems of adoration. If the thing you adore is not God, then you'll only pray when that thing is in jeopardy. In contrast is the heart of Asaph in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That takes grace to get to that point. Takes this word, His word, by the power of His Spirit to find root in our hearts even this morning. I'd like to close this morning with the Heidelberg Catechism, one of our other catechisms in our tradition that speaks also of this. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 122. What does the first request mean? Hallowed be your name means help us to really know you, to bless, worship, and praise you for all your works and for all that shines forth from them, your almighty power, your wisdom, your kindness, your justice, your mercy, and your truth. And it means help us to direct all of our living, what we think, say, and do, so that your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. As those who bear the name Christian, you bear the name of the Son of God. This ought to be our overriding concern in all of our life. Lord, give us grace to pray like this, to begin with your glory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this instruction from our Savior, We need your help. We need your grace. We confess our self-centeredness and our desire to just jump into what we need and what we want and to not seek first you, your character, your being, who you are. And so, Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would take this word, that you would plant it deep in us, that it might change us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.